Come with me as we dive into some of the most intimate diaries a person could share. My mission is to inspire you to push through during the toughest of times, too. Thank you for being here. This is Push Diaries Podcast, and I'm your host, Tess. Hey everybody, welcome to Push Diaries Podcast. I just wanted to put a little intro in the beginning of this episode. I found Laura on social media through the Naked Pastors Instagram page. She was being very open about her journey through sexual assault and suicide. Her story is something I know everyone will relate to even if they're not facing these issues in their own lives. She is a musician, mother, wife, and someone with vast knowledge about trauma and healthy coping skills. We wanted to make sure we included a trigger warning in this episode as she gives some graphic details about what she's been through and what has been done directly to her. Please be sure you don't have small ears nearby and just know that we do talk about some difficult things in this episode. Please be sure to check out her webpage that goes along with this episode at www.pushdiariespodcast.com forward slash episodes forward slash Laura. And be sure to find more information about Laura, her book, and her music at Laura Marie in Words on Instagram. Be sure to connect with her there or on Twitter as her Facebook page is not actually her. It's a bummer that the internet is full of people that hack and steal accounts and pretend to be someone they're not. Speaking with Laura has been an absolute honor, and I am blown away by her resilience and ability to grow and create a healthy, sustainable future for herself, her husband, and her family, despite what she has been through. She is the perfect definition of resilience and overcoming, and that's exactly what Push Diaries podcast is all about. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, I want to hear your story. Email me at pushdiariespodcast at gmail.com or connect with me on Facebook and Instagram. You can find Laura's episode and many others on Spotify, Audible, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, iTunes, Amazon Music, or on the website. In this episode, Laura and I discuss sexual assault statistics And we wonder about how often children are sexually assaulted in the United States. And I did come across some statistics that I wanted to share with you before the episode. The National Children's Advocacy Center says that the reality of sexual assault is this. One in ten children will be sexually assaulted or abused before the age of 18. One in five children are solicited sexually while on the internet. 20% of children are sexually abused before the age of 18. 90% of children are abused by a family member or someone they know and trust. And a whopping 60% of child sexual abuse victims will not tell anyone. More than 70% of child sex abuse cases involve a relative, friend, or someone else close to the child. Something we also discuss in this episode is trusting your gut. Talk to your children about who makes them feel uncomfortable. Pay attention to the way that they act if they don't want to be around an adult. Please honor that. 
you could avoid a lifetime of hurt in your child, and you could protect them from someone who shouldn't be trusted, that is around them and in your environment all the time. Sexual assault and sexual abuse is a very serious act, and we must speak with our children about healthy boundaries and give them the authority to kick and scream and defend themselves when possible and to be able to speak with you as parents when concerns arise. Unfortunately, every nine minutes, Child Protective Services substantiates or finds evidence for a claim of child sexual abuse. Every 98 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted. Childhood sexual abuse is widespread. One in five girls will be abused. One in 20 boys will be abused. Nearly 30% of children between 14 and 17 are sexually victimized. Child abuse survivors are three times more likely to develop major depression and four times more likely to experience post-traumatic stress disorder and four times more likely to develop substance abuse disorders, and only 7% of child sex abuse victims are harmed by a stranger. The vast majority are abused by someone they know, from friends and family members, to a teacher or a neighbor. Studying social work, and as a woman with a disability, I know no one can share a more experienced version of what they've been through than they themselves. So here's Laura. My 41st episode of Push Diaries podcast. Can you hear me okay? Because I'm making sure my sound is good. You sound amazing. And I love that you are even asking me that because so (laughs) many people don't. Then I'll go back and edit and it's like so quiet. Their voice is so quiet. (laughs) I have to pick up, you know, every sound bit of theirs and make it louder. So you know all that because you're a music lady. So I know you get it. Yeah, I just, it, it's weird because I have my recording set up and then sometimes it comes to, depending on how it's Skype or Zoom, I wouldn't need my headphones. I never, it's going to be a surprise. Like every time I open something, it's like, is it going to be my headphones or is it going to be the well, computer? You, yeah, you sound amazing. So I'm really okay, happy good. about that. Okay. I have only been doing this podcast for a year and like three months. I started this in 2020. Uh, in February, literally a month before the pandemic became, wow. you know, yeah. worldwide known. And so I'm really glad I did it because I really think that if I would have waited until it broke, I think I maybe wouldn't have had the balls to do it. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. For lack for sure. of a better word. Yeah. No, yeah, I get it. Yeah. No. I, I mean, cause when 20, after the pandemic started, I sort of shut down. Like creatively, I couldn't even, I was just all about survival. And I, you know, it's so weird because I'm not even like, you just go into that automatic, even if you're not like currently, like I wasn't in current danger. I mean, well, we all were, but you know, not, Yeah, it's still like you just go on automatic. Yeah. The fear was so real, right? Like, even though we respected it and knew that it was a problem, we still didn't know how it was even being transmitted to people like five months in, you know, it was unclear. So Hey, I hear you. I asked, like I said, after I started it, you know, I had already got out my first episode and I had already told everybody like, hey, we're going to do this every two weeks. So you can expect that. And then when the pandemic happened, yes, I felt that too. I was like, thank God I have four episodes already recorded. But you know, after eight weeks, those are gone. And then it's like, you have to keep going. So I'm just so thankful I'm here and you will be my 41st episode. So I'm so thankful. Oh, I'm honored. I'm honored to be here. 
So it's so funny because social media, I feel like I bitch about a lot because it's just <laughs> a toxic area with a bunch of negativity. Yes. And you know, we, everybody talks about their highlight reel. And I found you through the Naked Pastors page for people yes. that don't know. And you're a musician and you're a sexual assault survivor and a suicide attempt survivor. And so... I had a friend just tell me this morning, she's like, Tess, did you know that it's Mental Health Awareness Month? And I'm like, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> did you know that, Laura? Um, I did not know it was mental health. I mean, I'm aware, like I always remember too late, unless I'm doing something specific for the month, that I don't remember when the next year rolls around, you know, sexual assault awareness too, you know, is in April. Where we're May right now. <laughs> and so, yeah, it, every month has something else that, you know, that I'm just like, oh, yeah, I forgot that was this month or whatever. Yeah, unless I put it in my calendar, it doesn't exist until, yeah. until somebody tells me. And it's like, yeah. isn't it the truth that, like, I mean, it's wonderful that we have these awarenesses every month because it brings education and light to people that maybe haven't heard of it before and resources to people that need it. But, like, I know you and I probably think that all these things should be every day. Like, Black History Month, we should honor that every day of the year. Absolutely. I'm just so thankful to have you on. I'm so thankful that I found you. You know, I'm trying to branch out from people that I know, right? And, like, interview people that have grown up completely different than me, had completely different experiences. Because with the podcast, you know, people can stumble on this stuff, on this art, and, and, and these stories. and really bring a new leg and perspective to it. So I'm just so thankful that you're on and I'm so thankful that you're vulnerable because a lot of people aren't. So thank you. Well, you're welcome, <laughs> but I'm, I'm honored to be here. Really. I don't mind talking about this stuff. I think it's, I think there's a, it's part of the, well, I don't want to say it's a reason I went through it, but if you don't take what you've gone through and, and try to use it for some good awareness, uh, helping another person through it, whatever, then what, then having gone through it like what's the point I mean there's no point but the point is well to use it you know to use it in a, in yeah. a positive manner otherwise otherwise you're overwhelmed with just the victimhood of it you know right. that you don't and you don't want to live in that it's just not a way to live your Instagram posts are amazing I am really bad my Instagram posts my personal page are like a picture of me gardening and then I have no explanation with it <laughs> Uh, which is hilarious to me because, you know, people like you, you like take the time to write everything out. And I'm like, that is amazing. And it's so anyway, it's like, I don't know you, but I feel like just reading your posts about being vulnerable and self-responsibility. And like you said, choosing to not be a victim and allowing yourself to be angry when you need to or grieve however you need to grieve. These are really important steps. And sometimes I feel bad for men in our society, too, because I feel like we women can really understand each other and men just pretend like they have it all together and then don't talk about it. And so I just hope that this helps everybody, you know, uh, females, males, anybody in between. And that's really my goal for this podcast. You know, I was raised as a Christian young lady, but as I grew older, my spirituality kind of shifted and I would still call myself a Christian, but I hate that Christians use their spirituality to condemn others or their religion to condemn others because nobody's perfect, right? Right, yeah. You know, that ego or that victimhood, those are things that are negative and dark, right? And so when you focus on those things, your life perpetuates those types of results. And so starting back from when you were a kid, I want to know where you're from, where did you grow up, what was your childhood like, 
And did you have any examples in your younger years that like played a huge positive role in your life or a really negative one and totally changed the scope of you being a teenager? Can we just start there and you can kind of unravel your your story as you want? Okay. Well, I'm, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas to his Hispanic family. I'm, I'm fully Hispanic. I didn't grow up speaking Spanish though, because my parents, well, particularly my father was punished quite a bit in school, um, in Catholic school, actually, by the nuns, you know, they corporal punishment if you spoke Spanish, that sort of thing. So we were raised, I think my dad very much felt as if we needed to be raised to assimilate, you know, and my parents didn't speak Spanish in the home. My grandparents all spoke Spanish, but my my parents didn't. And, And we weren't punished or anything. We were taught to be proud of our, you know, our family and our heritage and all that other stuff. But it was not, they wanted us to not, you know, have heavy accents or be mocked or be punished for you know, speaking out. I have three sisters. I'm the second born of of four sisters, four girls. And my parents divorced right as I was graduating from high school. I think I was, my first uh, sexual assault was when I was eight years old at the hands of a neighbor. And um, it's quite a bizarre thing because I think that's the biggest negative. I had a lot of positives in that I had a very strong um, sense of family from my, especially from my mother's side, we were closer to my mother's side of the family, but although we were, you know, we're still close to our father's side and my grandmother, mother, it was very, like a very matriarchal feel. My dad was always at work and doing his things. I, I, I was the closest to my dad. I was like, daddy's little girl. I, I'd be the one to help him on all the projects, you know, <laughs> at home on the car or whatever it was. But at the same time, I had a lot of influence from the women in our family. And, um, and my mother was a, uh, she worked for the church all our life, the Catholic church all our life. So we were raised in the Catholic church and we were raised to uh, do a lot of, it was more of a acts of service. She's very progressive Catholic and with a lot of acts of service. And I mean, well, all Catholics are, are pretty much based on service and that sort of thing. So I was raised sort of with that mindset. And um, when I was eight years old, though, uh, you know, I was over at a neighbor's house, a sleepover, and, and was molested. That There had been some grooming before that, that, I, you know, of course, at eight years old, you don't know what's going on. Yeah. Can yeah. you talk <laughs> a little bit about, Laura, those details before it happened? It's so sad, and I don't know the statistics of sexual assault for, like, children below the age of, like, say, 15, but it's pretty high, isn't it? Like, I, I, I can remember, I'm like, numbers go straight out my head once, once I hear them and go, oh my goodness, and then they're gone. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty, I mean, there's, it's a lot more than you'd think. And it's, it's terrifying, really. And, yeah. and it's, that's what makes me so upset when people talk about it and they go, well, their picture in their head of somebody who molests you is completely different because it's, it's your neighbor, your pastor, your teacher, your, it's people that look normal that <laughs> do this. Right. I mean, it's not, they all, all look like creeps. Right. Uh, all, there are creeps out there. So I, I talked to my husband quite a bit about this because even today, I, at 50 years old, you know, if I get catcalled, I get immediately angry and defensive and, and the fight comes out. I grew up from the time of being in elementary school, I get catcalled on the way home from school walking at eight years old or, you know, or nine years, whatever it was. Um, I think I was even maybe a little bit younger than that too at, at some point, but it was, you're like surrounded by it. And um, I don't know if it had to do with the, the environment we were in. Um, it was probably a little bit lower middle class uh, area. And it was just time men would just come by and they'd say stuff to you as a kid. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, my neighbor, you know, 
he just had problems. And um, I think we were really close with his daughter. And so I think he saw that as, oh, great, these four girls <laughs> moved in. There would be a lot of, he was, he was, we actually called him uncle. We, we referred to him as uncle because we were really close to his daughter, spent a lot of time. And over, it didn't happen immediately, but looking back, there were times I'd be over and he'd tickle us, you know, which as an adult now, and that back then was a time when, you know, parents were just like, oh, you're going to the neighbor's house, bye. You know, it was, it was not, there was not this idea of right. there's going to be something dangerous. So, um, and, and they, and my neighbor was a little bit older than me. She was actually closer to my sister's age, my older sister's age, but I always wanted to be, I was like the one, you know, I wanted to be around them and playing with them all the time. So when I spent the night, I, I wanted to be, I was in the cool girls club, you know, I get to hang out with them. Um, and in the middle of the night, he, he came into the room and climbed on top of me. And there's, a um, this was like months after the, you know, all the tickle, fights and throwing me on the bed and you know stuff like that that I didn't even take for I can't even recall feeling weird about it because my dad would tickle me all the time I, you know my mom right. my grandma, you, know, tickle, you know tickle fights whatever um so it wasn't until then that I was uh I knew something had happened and I, I remember very distinctly feeling as if I can't open my eyes because then he's gonna know I know he's doing this Wow. And uh, so I have to pretend like I'm asleep. Wow. And so I, I kept pretending like to turn and toss and turn as if I was asleep. And um, and then I don't remember anything. Yeah. I, I still don't remember anything. I don't know it, if he stopped, got off. I don't know if he went further. I couldn't tell you any of yeah. it. Yeah. It's like a trauma response. You as a kid, you know, you made the comment that you don't know what happened and and it's not like you felt warned beforehand because you trusted this guy he was your neighbor you had seen him a million times before that day and it is it's scary because you as a kid you know you don't always know your boundaries right like you right. can't say oh an adult shouldn't do that if an adult is doing something and you trust that adult it's really hard right to navigate what's right right and what's wrong but your body like you're saying you knew what he was doing wasn't right. Yeah. The concern I had was if I open my eyes and he knows that I know, then tomorrow morning, it's going to be really awkward. Like I can't look at him. So I'm going to pretend I'm asleep. I'm going to sleep. And then when in the morning comes, it'll just be like, oh, I was just asleep and I had a bad dream. Yeah. Uh, and so then the next thing I recall uh, from that, I don't remember how the rest of the evening went, how I woke up, anything. I just remember the next day or so, um, talking to my mom and saying, I think something happened. And she said, what are you talking about? Like, I remember her getting very like, what, what are you saying? And I said, yeah. um, I, when I spent the night and she's like, I think she said something like, you, you don't ever have to go back there. I said, Oh no, it's a night. It was a nightmare. I had a nightmare yeah. because in, immediately I was like, Oh, I don't, I'm not going to ever be able to see my friend again or go right. over and everybody's going to know what's happening. So I just immediately just shut it all down and didn't say a word about it from that point on. Wow, uh, but, Laura. Yeah, but looking back, I had so many issues. I had, like, I couldn't, I, I'd have this lower back tension and pain all the time. I'd have oh trouble sleeping. Um, of course, I had, I had a lot of boundary issues. You're eight years old and you have your sexual awareness woken. So then when you get curious about your body, there's so much shame associated with it. At the same time, there's so much curiosity and, and sensation right. and, Right. And so it all gets very, very confused. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, 
Dude, I have never said this on the podcast before, but, like, when I was a kid, I had some urges of being horny and curious and, you know, (laughs) thinking, like, oh, I want to masturbate in the shower, but I probably shouldn't because that's bad, you know? Isn't it sad that in our society, again, with the Christian perspective, it's like we teach kids and even teenagers and even young adults, like, you shouldn't explore any of that. It's bad. You need to be married before you do it. But then you have people catcalling you on the street. And you have ugly neighbors that do horrible things to you. I had a babysitter that sexually assaulted me as a child. And it was all fondling and looking at me. But he was um, an older teenager. Um, I think he must have been like 16 or 17. And I was little. I was probably five. And we would play doctor. And I would lay on the counter in our bathroom, and he would look at me when I just had a shirt on, just a t-shirt on, and he would have me lay with my knees open. And I feel like I need to say in the beginning of this episode that if people are sensitive about hearing these examples, we sh- they shouldn't listen to it because it is really traumatic. And I'm so thankful that he didn't do more to me, but I always did. I felt shameful about that. And I always have. Yeah. And I haven't even admitted this to really anyone. And so um, I just appreciate your bravery to share, Laura, because what you went through is a lot more significant than what, than what I did, and I feel like it confused the hell out of me. So it is, it's very confusing, and I think it it really um it it's, it set the boundary, it took down my boundaries. So I, at the same time that I was um, very defensive about being catcalled, even you know at that age, I mean, I would I would tell grown up men, you know, like flip the bird and tell yeah. them you don't have, you know, like, Good. you don't even have anything between your legs, you know, whatever, right. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Cause I was, I was, you know, it was kind of like the tough side of town or something, but then, you know, fast forward to high school. Um, when I started becoming sexually active, then it was like hyper overdrive, you know, but I was very, very much like, you know, with my, the person I, everybody I was, anybody I slept with was somebody I was in love with. So in my entire life, it was like, oh, I'm just so in love with you. So to me, it was just like, that's it. This is my one partner. This person I'm going to marry, you know, my high school boyfriend, I'm yeah. going to marry him. And so we're going to have sex and that's, everything's fine. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, that, that was probably a little too young to be so in that space. Yeah. And I mean, but what ended up happening there was when that relationship broke up, it was the same year that my parents divorced. It was the same year I went off to college. My boyfriend was a year younger than me, so he was still back home. And um, there was an incident in which a really great male friend of mine, I mean, he's a good, good friend of mine, got curious at a party and kissed me, just surprised me. And somebody saw that, took it back to my boyfriend and said, hey, she's making out with this guy. I'm like, that's oh. not what happened. That's oh, not what no. happened. And um, And it was a phone call. And it was... My parents divorced and I had, I'd been on my own and I was feeling very, very lost in a new city. And he said, did you kiss this guy? And I said, no. And then he goes, but somebody saw you said, well, yeah, I mean, we kissed, but I didn't kiss him is what I said. He said, too late, done, we're over. I never want to see you again. Oh my gosh. And I immediately went into a full blown panic. The whole, it's like the whole world shifted out from under me and I, I just, I couldn't function. I was, I was, I was non-functional. I was having panic attacks and I was having, you know, uh, weeping fits and I couldn't, I, I didn't think I could survive. I actually felt like I wanted to die, you know. How old and my, were you when that I was, so that was 18, 18. 18. 
Well, yeah. Yeah. Laura, looking back at your life, it's like you trusted your parents so much and, and you could and you did. And then a neighbor let you down in a huge, immense way. And then your boyfriend doesn't trust you. Right. When you give all this love and you were injured and you were hurt and you could have closed up, but you chose to love. And then he just pulls the rug out from under you and basically says, screw you. I'm done. Yeah. Like, oh my God. Yes. How confusing. I mean, to this day, I, I look, I was, we were talking about this the other day. And I was thinking, you know, to this day, he probably just thinks of me as the girl who broke his heart because I cheated on him. I'm like, yeah. that is not what happened. Yeah. But, but because of that, I sort of became that person though, because after that, my, my whole world, I identified myself with how he, I was in that relationship. So when that was gone, I was all of a sudden, the worst person in the world. So yeah. my, my, I couldn't function without a, a sexual relationship. I, yeah. I couldn't identify myself beyond that. So I was in this very weird, my therapist at the time that later I went to said, it's like you're disassociating. It's like you're just, you're, you're putting yourself in dangerous situations and you're putting yourself in, you know, um, sexual situations and, and like you just blank out. So it's almost like that reliving that molestation, um, in that I would, not have any control over the situation, but I'd, I'd, I'd be the one almost like I'd put myself there, but then I'd just completely shut down emotionally, completely. So it was this really, and then the shame of that, when it would come back flooding in was just this cycle of like, I'm a horrible person and, you know, and, and, but I'm victimizing myself repeatedly. I keep victimizing myself repeatedly. Do, do you think your idea of what love was, was, wrongfully defined by your sexual assault um i don't i definitely conflated the two things like i I, there was definitely this idea that that sex was like that was the only way you were going to feel safe i don't know if i thought really thought that was love though i just thought of it as safety and which is odd because it's like was the least safe thing for me to do but that's the only way i felt calm and that's because i would shut down I didn't yeah. realize that that's what was happening. I just thought that's what calms me, but it wasn't what calms me. It's just what shut me down. Okay. Uh, yeah. So then I, I, that was at the time when my, when my mother put, you know, took me to a therapist and they put me on medication and the medication I was on, um, to this day, I don't know how much of an influence it had in my attempting suicide because there, I do tend to have, I've been, I was on several after that and I do tend to have the negative side effects more than the positive, um, you know, benefits of them. And I've known of two people who have gone on these type of SSRIs that have had adverse reaction to the point where they were, weren't suicidal and then became suicidal. Wow. What, I, what I remember is, is that at one point I did want to try to cut my wrists and I tried to, um, but it didn't. And, and we, yeah, we definitely need a trigger warning at the beginning of this, but, but it was never like, I, I didn't want, I didn't want to feel pain. I just couldn't make myself shake out of that frame of mind. So I needed to, you know, hurt myself to do something. And, um, then I just remember picking up my medication in a moment of panic. And then the next thing I remember again, disassociating was there was the bottle pills. The bottle pills is now empty. It's still in my hand. So I probably took them, but I don't remember. Wow. Um, my college roommate came in. I told her what happened. Um, I even ran to the window thinking I was going to jump off of, jump out of the te- second story, second story dorm window. And then I was there and I'm like, I, 
I'm afraid to be hurt, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, I, you know, but I had already but hurt you, myself. Yeah, yeah. You were panicking and you were kind of spiraling out of control. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, how, what can you say to people that are listening that like have never been through this and just don't understand or people that would think someone would do this just to get attention or because you talk about the confusion and the dissociating. And I think a lot of people just don't understand, empathize or sympathize with what that could possibly be like do you know what I mean I think it's hard for people if they've if they've had examples and tools of how to cope with um tragedy or trauma or they haven't had tragedy or trauma exactly then it's really hard to understand how somebody would know you know and that it goes with anything I, I mean I have a friend of mine who's an absolute genius and he taught the LSAT and he would just be like I don't understand what people don't get well I mean we don't have your brain capacity okay dude you know right um so but it but it is when you know how to do something you look at people like how do you not know how to do that and I really didn't have any of the tools to cope with any kind of trauma because my experience of trauma was very when I was very young and the only tools I had were what how I survived and that was by lying and by shutting down and when you're in a waking state in a complete panic and you're aware of what's happening and the pain that you're feeling emotionally, physically, whatever it is, and you can't do that, you can't force yourself to disassociate in that moment. Um, your biggest concern is shut it down, shut it down, shut it down, stop it, stop, 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 stop the pain, stop the it's overwhelming. And you don't have a go to, you know, you don't have a go to. Um, I think that that is that's one of the some of the things that I learned in therapy and all the, you know, I was in therapy from the time I was 17, uh, 16 or 17. Cause I was, I was having, um, I had OCD. I had, um, a lot of anxiety and depression. And, um, I think at that time too, like that breakup, I went to where I was having all these horrible relationships or if that's what you want to call them, you know, sexual relationships to also, um, Pur- binging and purging and then starving myself because I could just couldn't make myself eat, you know, and I'd lost a ton of weight. And it was just this whole effects of the depression and the anxiety I was feeling, yeah. um, not be in a, in a relationship was I thought I had to be stable in a relationship. Yeah, that's the only thing way I could be stable. Did your sisters understand what you had been through? Did, were they ever groomed or had that man been assaulting his own children? What did what happened with that after it, after your mom found out? Was it just kind of like hush, hush? Let's just take care of you, and you never have to go over there. I mean, like, how did that unfold over the years, Laura? It it took a while. I mean, um, I believe that that he was molesting his daughter because she ended up much later on drugs, and um, and we had some altercations she and I did not get along uh, for a long time not not because of her but because of me because every time I saw her I was just angry at her um and you know I I mean that yeah that was a whole very difficult situation because now I I actually by coincidence well not really coincidence but you know people would consider a coincidence I think it's just one of those things that you know like a god moment that she happens to be regularly in my life I see her occasionally uh, in the neighborhood and she um and I have no animosity towards her whatsoever but well, I, I believe good. that she yeah I believe that she went through a lot um, herself 
And, yeah. um, but my, my, I didn't tell my family for years and years. Yeah. So, you know, that wasn't my, my sisters were not really aware. They did, they, they weren't, they were handling like the divorce. And my sister, my older sister had already been out of the house for several years. So she was in a different planet as far as that right. was concerned. But right. she was where I was. She she lived in the college town where I was. I went to UT Austin and she was there. So she lived in Austin at the time. And she um, actually sort of uh, was my my caregiver for a while, for a short time amount of time, because I lived with her while I continued going to school. Um, of course, I, I ended up flunking out of the semester because I or just leaving school because I just couldn't cope mentally. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I'm so glad that your family was a support, even though it was so confusing. And I'm sure the divorce was so painful and hard to understand too. Um, but you know, even your culture, you know, being taught to love it right at home behind closed doors. But then like your dad felt like he couldn't even be himself out in the community. And I'm sure that even if you kids didn't feel that directly or you weren't reprimanded by Catholic nuns. Like I'm yeah. sure that still was very painful and confusing for a child, you know, it, it can be. I mean, you just, you get a sense of like on the subject of race, it was a bizarre thing. Cause as this is all happening at the same time, I am going to UT Austin. And at the time there was a lot more discrimination there. So I, there were times I'd be walking down the street with a friend of mine and I'd have a, a car of frat boys come by and say, uh, you know, go back to where you came from, um, you dirty spick, you know, like, I'm like, what, what is happening here? I mean, I like, what are they? And, and I'm wearing like a scarf and they're, and my friends just like, well, you look more ethnic with the scarf wrapped around you. I'm like, well, that, that, you're like, you it's know, cold. Just, Can I walk yeah, with the exactly. scarf, please? <laughs> right. And, not be and so ridiculed. Right. There was, and there was a, there was a discrimination there. And, you know, my dad would say, you know, that's just comes from ignorance. I'm like, it just, it makes me angry. So, I was having these uncontrollable bouts of rage. And so when from everything that was happening, but also yes. to get called a, a racial slur or something like that, I, I had a friend actually have to hold me back because I, I just had this, these impulses to either hurt myself or other people. Um, there's, there were just a lot of issues with that, a lot of struggle with, with anger. And there was also coupled with that, my mother's influence from the never say you hate, hates a bad word, hates the worst word. Um, forgive, you know, forgiveness and, and prayer and all these other things. So I was trying to balance out this idea of, of be forgiving, be loving and, and this extreme anger and, and resentment from like not being protected or not being, you know, not, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just all of it, you know, or how could anybody do that? You were trying to live a noble, humble life, but you were in an environment that was not sustaining that type of focus or perspective. Yeah, but I also, but I never felt like I was trying at the time to live a noble, humble life. I really just felt like there was something gross about me. There was something oh. filthy about me, like something oh, dirty yeah. about me. So I really, yeah. really had that internalized that that the real part of you, the deep part of you, was dirty and and nasty. And and, um, and and did that come from your ethnicity and your race? Did that sprout from that unacceptance from? what your dad experienced and what you knew about as a kid. And then it just sort of went crazy after the assault. How would you, how would you pinpoint that grossness that you felt internally? Uh, I think that that was more of a misogyny type thing that I got from the culture around me, basically, you know, like just culture in general, there was this idea that 
somehow I got the picture that it was my fault. Like there was something there was, I was to blame because other people around me didn't get molested. Other, not that I knew of. I mean, later on right. you find out a lot did, right? But at right. the time you don't really know. And then you just think, well, it's, you know, that may have happened, but that's in this little bubble over here. You're acting out sexually or you have these thoughts, or you have these urges that's on you. So sure. even at, nine, 10 years old or 11 years old, there's something, you know, what's wrong with you? Like, why are you, you know, whatever. I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, you get that, that idea you're being watched and everybody's looking at you. And I, I carried that for years and years and years of self-consciousness of like, there people are, are judging me because, you know, this underlying idea that I'm, I'm at fault here. It's yeah. My fault. Because I, truthfully, I had sexual thoughts and urges too. So that must, that's on me. Well, Laura, you're certainly human and that's normal, (laughs) but yes, how, I mean, I feel like I'm saying the word confusing so much, but it is, it's like, how do you, how do you grow any confidence and individuality as a person when you are just thrown into that raging river of just like sexuality and misogyny and the racism and You know, I think, too, that when you're in a heavily populated area, unfortunately, you come across more people that are not accepting, right? Well, and there's a push and pull, too, of of wanting to be loved, wanting to feel attractive, wanting to feel that people are attracted to you. You know, you have that naturally. I mean, like, you know, in your high school, you want to be attracted. You know, you want all this. Yeah. uh, You want attention uh, at some point. And and then to feel because. You know, I went from there and the years following, um, I believe I was 19 or 20 when the, the second assault happened. And that was, um, really rough because I was living, I'd come home. I was living with a friend. Uh, we had an apartment together and we were, you know, these young out of college students that were going to drink on the weekends and have all kinds of fun. And, and I had a friend of mine, a male friend of mine said, Hey, what are you doing this weekend? Let's, let's go hang out. Let's go do some stuff. I said, I can't, she, you know, my roommate asked me to go on a double date with her. She's really trying to get with this guy and he, he's going to go out with her, but, um, he has a friend and wants me to go too. And, um, these guys were, Oh, I didn't want to go because I thought the guy, I thought the guy was gross. He was much older and the, and I knew my roommate. And I, she had said that the reason she wanted to be with this guy was because he had a lot of money and that she was like, you know, he'll, he'll be like my sugar daddy kind of thing. That's like the first time I actually heard that term. And, you know, she was just my roommate. She was a friend. We weren't, we weren't close in high school. We were close afterwards and our, our lives coincided. So we had a, had a apartment together and I went on the double date and I was of course with a guy that looked like he could be my uncle or father. And I'm just like, this is really gross. And I was not 21 yet. And we were in a bar and I could feel people looking at us like, that is creepy. And I was, she had like, she's like, we need to get dressed up real cute and everything. And I remember I was wearing a really tight, short dress, sitting in a bar, feeling like an idiot. They got us a couple of drinks. I remember we went to the bathroom and I was like, I feel so drunk. Like I feel so drunk. And I've only had one drink. And at that time I was drinking. So one drink was not going to make me drunk, but that, that really had me, I mean, we were laughing, we were falling over each other in the bathroom. We come out and then the next thing I know, we're back at his house and, um, they had a, their way with us. And that was a shame I carried with me. I didn't tell anybody for years about that. So 
that was a shame I carried with me for a really long time because in my mind, I was an active participant, but I never made, I remember as it was happening, I remember feeling both compelled to have sex. Like it was a physical, I don't know what they gave us. I don't know if it was ecstasy. I don't know if it's, what kind of drug it was. All I know is that my, my sexual urge or whatever was heightened beyond anything I'd ever known in my entire life. Also that it was unsatiable insatiable so that like there was no there was no release or relief to it and they were laughing so they thought it was hilarious and um that i couldn't stop any i was helpless to stop anything i had never made a choice to i knew beforehand that i thought both of these men were disgusting and i didn't want to have anything to do with them but that there i was and the next day i just was just you know she even said i think they gave us something and i was like this ever talk about this again basically um and that was that for years for years and years and years so and years and years <laughs> did they laura try to get back with you guys did or was it just like yeah just fun entertainment for one night they use you and leave you what what was it like it was the one days and, after one and done as far as i i remember i mean i she may have contacted them again later or something i don't i don't recall i lost touch with her she was a horrible roommate she was not a very good person she actually <laughs> st- ended up stealing from me from my mother and oh yeah my it was just like gosh. a horrible situation but that's that- terrifying that is so terrifying and i get i get why you kept it quiet like i understand why you felt shameful i mean i don't understand all of it but i get it it that night unraveled not in the way that you intended you know what i mean no, not at all and i and i i struggled really to call it rape for a very long time because to me rape was like you were forced you were beaten like you were fighting right and you were trying to stop it or you were unconscious and i was none of those things and it wasn't until um it was the most bizarre story it, uh, what happened was I started writing music and I decided one day that I was really, I was going to pull some of those feelings out. And actually I intended to write about that for a really long time. And I hadn't. Yeah. And I actually was in a radio interview with a guy who had a, a radio podcast and he was so misogynistic that I, when at the end of that interview, I cried because oh, like I got off and I just wept. I'm just like, I can't, I feel attacked. I feel exploited. Yeah. I feel, and and he, all he did was stuff like, like, what do you, you know, oh, what are you wearing? Or, you know, something like that. I mean, just, and, and belittling, like there's a guy, a male musician and a female musician, but he kept talking about the guy's work and then talking about what I was wearing and then trying to push me into like, oh, have you ever been in this weird sexual situation? And I started trying to play along with his conversation because I felt like if you don't play along, then you can't be, uh, they're going to think you're not cool and you're not, you're not worthy of being highlighted as a musician. So right. I'm in this position where I feel like I need to play along and I need to be the cool chick that, you know, that anybody, the guys can say yeah. anything in front of, which was usually my role. Like, Oh, guys can say anything in front of me. Cause I've seen it all, you know? And, but that was so disturbing and so triggering that I ended up writing a song about my assaults yeah. and, or about just, just, you know, it was kind of a little bit of a veiled song about like everything I felt about myself too. And, yeah. and I ended up writing it and then singing it at uh, the rape crisis center here in San Antonio. And a woman who heard that song contacted me and she said, I heard your song and I've been following you and I'm so afraid for you because the guy that you interviewed with raped me. What? 
She said, he, she said, look him up. He's got a record. And I looked him up and there was a, a record of, of him being arrested for sexual assault and battery. And so the guy that triggered me from just his words on the radio was her rapist. Wow. Oh my God. Well, if that's not a God thing, I don't know what it yeah. is. And it's, it's insane because when I finally talked about, cause I waited years to talk about this story cause she was so afraid of me saying anything that, that he would know, he would know I told you and then he'll come for me, you know, and she never fully identified herself. So I, to this day, don't know who she is, but, um, Later on, I was, it was just like last year, I was on a, um, a Twitter, the Twitter has this new, these new spaces and a friend of mine, we were talking about certain things and being a survivor. And I started saying that story. Maybe it was a podcast, I think. And he popped into the audience of it. What? And I just, while I'm telling the story in the middle of the story and I had blocked him from my social media accounts, but she, Apparently, had, she didn't know anything about him, so he. You were telling her. you were telling the story about how you wrote the song, and the woman admitted to being raped by this guy, and then he pops in, and then he pops in out of nowhere. What? And I'm like, and I was, I had to, I stammered, and I told my friend, I was just like, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't go, I like, I can't think straight because this person he's that in I here. he's in here, and she said. Okay, well, we're just going to change the subject or something like that. And then later on, she said, "Oh, I thought you were upset because another guy that, like, yeah. a producer of mine that I wasn't getting along with was in the room." I said, "No, that wasn't it. It was a, it was the guy. It was this yeah. rapist dude." And um, so is that like, Laura oh God, like an me. Instagram Live type thing, or what is that? I don't even know what that Twitter thing is. Or, or are you oh, just saying uh, it was? It, no, I was I was confusing because she does uh, Twitter Spaces now, but actually, I think it, what it was it was might have been a Facebook. Uh, live, those, like live thing, yeah, that we were doing wow. at the time, and it was at the beginning of the pandemic. So it, that was really, really Yucky. bizarre. And I mean, we tend to in San Antonio, where I say it's a big, small town, so people run in the same circles all the time. So that you know, it's not sure. that surprising. But at the same time, it was just like, could this be any weirder that he gets his? It's like almost like my energy is attracting his energy to just come, like he knows what I'm talking about him or something. I have no idea. Yeah, but. Um, he doesn't have any contact with me anymore and I don't have any with him. And I think I've been so vocal about stuff that I don't think he'd be dumb enough to. Right. <laughs> yeah. To say, if he yeah. keeps coming back, you're eventually going to tell him off and just, you know, share to the world what kind of scum he is. But like, yeah, I, I think it's heartbreaking that you were trying to internally heal yourself from what you had been through. And, and, you know, I sometimes hate the word heal too, because are we ever really healed? I don't think so. But but you were trying to internally make yourself a safe place, and then he was pulling out. It's almost like if you're a cotton pillow. It's like he was pulling out your stuffing. You know what I mean? And trying to piss you off, and he succeeded at that. And and I'm so sorry that you had that realization and you sobbed. But I'm also so thankful because your artistic words are helping people get through a place of confusion where you felt totally abandoned, totally worthless. And now you're bringing light to how to cope. Right. And so that's the God thing. I think, I think that the insight for me, that the way that whole thing broke down over the years and, and that I was able to share with my son because he was going through a hard time. He had a breakup with a girlfriend um, a few years back. And I said, she was, she treated him horribly. And I said, okay, after it was pretty clear that she had manipulated him and um, 
I said, remember this feeling because somewhere down the line, you're going to feel this feeling again. And that is your instinct. That is your instinct telling you something's not right with this situation. And sure enough, like a year later, he's in another situation and he's just like, this feels familiar. And he comes and he tells me, he's like, it just, it, I can't, I can't explain it, but it feels like this other situation. And I said, no, you, we can't explain it. It's a gut thing. Sometimes it's really hard to put it into words, but you have to start listening to your gut. So yes. you need to, you know, back, back away from that situation because you know, it's not healthy for you because you have such an awareness of how unhealthy the other situation was. Yeah. Um, but, but knowing all that, I mean, I said, I said, you have the benefit of having a mom who went through most of her life in therapy. <laughs> so there's a right. lot of, there's a lot of awareness that you gain, especially not just from therapy, but also from a lot of introspection. A lot of curiosity is why do I keep putting myself in the same pattern? Why do I keep doing stuff? I mean, I married a man who is the safest person you'd ever want to be with. Not a, not a misogynistic, you know, bone in his body. I mean, just, just a good, loving, helpful Midwest guy who just doesn't have a bad intention to manipulate anybody. And I would seek out people who would manipulate me, whether it was through work or whatever, or I would just keep re-victimizing myself because like you said, that, that wasn't healed. There's so many layers to it that you really don't know how deep you have to go before you start going, Oh, that's, that's, that's the pattern I need to change. And then there's another one underneath that. And then there's another one underneath that, you know, just, you just, it's like a, um, I had a, a healer that I saw that told me it's like, it's like a rut, you know, it's like a brain pathway that becomes like a rut. You just, you go on yeah. this automatic, you get the trigger and you automatically go on that pathway until you force yourself off that pathway into, into other options, into other ways of thinking, other ways of feeling, other ways of reacting. And then that becomes the new way of doing it. But it's sometimes some of it is so subconscious that you don't even know until you're halfway into the pattern before you go, okay, wait a second. This is the same thing again, 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 feels familiar. And it only gets to feel familiar after you've done it. Like how many times and you go, Oh, but if you can separate the shame of having put yourself, putting yourself in situations or, or participating in situations or even perpetuating situations, if you can get past that and say, you're not your actions, you're not, you know, this is, you did this, but you can change this, then, right. you know, that's a big shift there. Right. Absolutely. People don't have to stay in a place of shame or guilt. They can choose to, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but find the value in themselves that is there because every human, you matter <laughs> too, you know, like, yeah. isn't it sad that, that so many of us struggle with purpose and you know, not allowing ourselves to be in those manipulative situations. Like, you know, I would say there's codependency in my family too, just amongst us. You know, it's like we, when shit hits the fan and, and we need each other, we're there for each other, gosh darn it. But then it's like when things are good, I think we're still, we don't get along. You know what I mean? And yeah. so it's, it is, you're right. It's hard. It's hard to retrain your brain and decide what am I going to participate in and what am I going to speak out against? And when am I going to just say, I'm going to go home now. I don't want to be around yeah. these people. You know, it's funny before you shared that thing about your son, I, I wrote down when you were talking a little bit earlier, I said, how will you protect kids or little loved ones in your life after what you've been through? Yeah, that's a big thing for me. I have two boys. So, you know, I didn't have any girls. And, um, I, you know, 
we start out one by telling them that it's absolutely natural. You know, everything like masturbation or sex and all of that is like, we don't, I don't want them to associate that with shame. I wouldn't say I've been perfect at that because I remember just really freaking out when one of my sons was exposed to something and I was like, Oh my God, he's going to, you know, like I, I had such, it was such a trigger of panic for me because I wanted my children to grow up in this pristine little box. You and, wanted to protect him. Yeah. At the same time that they also had to see me struggle through post postpartum and, and some of the trauma that went with that. Cause there was, you know, I figured I want to screw them up as little as possible, please. <laughs> Thank you. You know, but it, it, there's no, you can't protect them from the entire world. But, you know, we taught them very early that sex is natural and and uh, about consent, um, about consent for their own bodies as well. Um, if they don't want to be touched, if they don't want to be talked to in a certain way, if they don't, whatever it is. And just really about, like, they can talk to us about anything, anything. And we've been, you know, very grateful to find out that when they've had issues with friends when they've had friends who have been suicidal, that they've actually come to us and say, what, what do I do? You know, I've been very proud of my boys that, that we, because we have these conversations, they've been able to talk to us and actually we've been able to get some of their friends help when they've been yes. struggling. Yeah. Yeah. So, Without knowing it, Laura, you could, you could and very well have saved lives, you know, that's it's, there's, it's just there's important no, to talk about. there's no value on that. You know, there's no, that's priceless. That is immensely important. Well, wow. Okay, so, you know, I know we're kind of rewinding. So after that second sexual assault, did you have urges to cut yourself again? Because you first had urges to cut yourself before that, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, talking again about the antidepressants, did you try one? You had bad symptoms, so then you tried another one right away and you had bad symptoms. Were you on them a long time or did you try them all out and then now you're not on any? Do you mind talking about that too? I don't mind talking about I don't mind talking about it at all. Um I was on I didn't do a lot of the cutting. That was that one it was around the breakup that I did that. I didn't really do a lot of that because I don't like pain. <laughs> so, you know, at the time I was it was it was, I need to stop something or whatever, but it wasn't, or I need somebody to, to help me, help me, help me, help me, you know, and if I cut myself, they'll help me. Um, or they'll take me seriously and know that I can't do this. I can't, I can't function and please right. somebody come and, and do it and, and do something. I was actually in a, in an institution for about uh, a week or so, I think on the, on campus, they had me in a room, took my shoelaces, that whole bit. So that wow. was, wow. Yeah. And they actually, I didn't even go into the, I, I ended up in the hospital with the overdose and they did, uh, it was too late to pump my stomach. So they poured uh, liquid charcoal down my throat, which was not pleasant, but thankfully that hopefully got everything that they needed to get at the time. There, I mean, other, other assaults happened, not to that extent. I mean, there, there were, there was harassment, there was sexual harassment. At a, at, even after I got married, there was a, an incident where I was worked as a waitress and I was forcibly kissed by the cook and then actually, you know, pushed into a freezer and locked in there for a bit with him. And I was just like, you need to let, you let me out of here. Cause I will hit you. I will kick you. You know, I'm just like cussing at him and everything. And then there was, and I quit that job. And then I became a teacher cause I got my degree in teaching and music education. And, um, one of the band directors, the assistant band director kept coming into my room and kept like trying to rub my shoulders and, uh, dirty jokes all the time. And I had to go to the principal and I actually brought my husband with me to the principal because I was like, I was shaking. I was so, you know, freaked out about it. And, um, 
ultimately ended up quitting that job because not a whole lot was done at the time either. Oh, I think Laura. I really know what to do. So there were incidences like that, like, you know, there was just a lot of, of harassment in different situations, but also, I mean, I, it's so common. <laughs> it's, it happens to so many people I know, and then it doesn't happen to some people at all. And I don't know, I think part of it, there's, I, I, I can't make sense of it, or I, I don't really have a theory as to why that happens, except that, that I think there's some energy that I not purposely put out there or something, but some sort of, you know, scarlet letter that says, there's something about me that will, has a high tolerance for weird behavior or creepy behavior that I don't even know is there, you know? Yeah. Now it's a lot less because I'm like, I have a, such an awareness of where, where I am that, yeah. that people being creepy, I'm just kind of like, okay, you know, I might call them out on it. So they get a little intimidated or whatever. But I think for a long time, I didn't have that awareness. Um, I was on antidepressants. <sighs> Well, after that, I was off for a little bit, and then they put me on a different one, and that didn't really help a lot. And then I tried a different one after that. I can't keep – I know Zoloft was in there someplace, too, and I just remember that I had um, – they did not think I could get pregnant. I have Hashimoto's. They didn't know I had it back then, but I had some difficulty with fertility. And I started taking some supplements and boom, got pregnant. And as soon as I got pregnant, I had been on Zoloft. And so I got pregnant. I'm like, I can't be taking Zoloft while I'm pregnant. I don't know what's going to do to the baby. So I quit cold turkey, which you're not supposed to do. And uh, I was very, very sick for for like about a month or so. And then after my son was born, I had such severe postpartum depression that I couldn't couldn't leave the house. I was actually... um, I was agoraphobic for well over a year, like just leaving the house, especially when sun, I had that whole sundowning thing. When the sun would start to set, I'd start weeping. Um, I would panic. I took everything as a sign of like, you know, uh, I went to the gas station once and I saw like, it came out to an even number of like $3 and three, whatever it was. It was like some change where I was like, that means something bad's going to happen. I have to go home. You know, like, so I, yeah. was, like, I couldn't, I couldn't go very far just, from home where I'd start yeah. freaking out just over everything. Oh my God. And, and I know that my, that it, there was even times that I had to call my husband home from work because I was afraid I couldn't be alone with the baby. And I didn't think I was going to hurt the baby. I also could not, like, I'd be raging or freaking out or crying uncontrollably. And you can't take care of a child when you're like that. So I'd have, you need to come home, you know, um, so there was a bit of that. And when they did put me on another antidepressant, then afterwards, I, it, it like, it, I had zero sex drive. I had, you know, yeah. sort of dulled out my senses. Um, I had, I think I gained a lot of weight. I think was another one. And there was s- several different things, like, you know, side effects that I, I broke out uh, pretty badly, too. And, and then sort of my self-esteem started going down the dumper, you know. This, the more my, my body changed, the less I could do. It, it affected my marriage, of course. You yes. know, my husband didn't grow up with any... He has his own traumas. Like, I, I don't want to, like, say that my... Everybody has their traumas. And I don't yes. like it when people say, well, you haven't been through what I've been through. But that's true. But in the context of who you are, your trauma is significant. You know, right. like, it still, it still affects right. you. So your right, traumas right, right. are going to clash with my traumas. And we're going to have all these issues. And so there was, like I said, there was a lot of... Uh, my, my husband and I married very young. We were, you know, I was 21 when I got married and I, I did not have, I still didn't have all the coping skills, or the, you know, to deal with everything. So, and like I told you before, 
you know, this was a great relationship, but I was still seeking out trauma elsewhere. So there was always drama. There was always drama going on. And so, of course, that was very confusing in our relationship because I didn't know, uh, you know, I knew him to be this person that was amazing that I wanted to be with. But why? 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 You know, why does it keep this keep coming back? And then it was always it's me because he grew up in a uneventful, you know, right. Childhood. So it can't be him. Right. Um. And it wasn't necessarily him. It was it was the dynamic of not right. being able to, you know, uh, yeah, there's just you, so you, much there. Yeah, you didn't know how to cope together as a couple and really right. communicate and be totally on the same page. By the way, people listening, that's totally normal. You know, I, I love that in 2021, you know, we hear a lot more about mental health and a lot more about counseling and seeking that out and that being normal. Because you're right, Laura, everybody has been through a different experience. And just like you said, everybody's hurt is no greater or less than another's. It might be very different, but it still shapes who we are. Yeah. And and you still have to talk about it. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely, you know, we just grew up very, very differently. And, and the thing that I'm very grateful for is, above all, we value each other as human beings. And we always were able to come back to this idea like, you weren't trying to purposely hurt me. Like right. I have such respect for my husband, his integrity, and I know that he would never do anything to purposefully hurt me. Even if I get so triggered that I, I'm, I'm certain that you did, you did that just to make me angry. No. And I, uh, you know, a minute when it, when it all settles down, I go back and go, yeah, there's just, that's not him. He doesn't do that. That's not what he does. You know? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, because I, I just know who he is as a person and can trust that and rely yeah. on that. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, it was, there was a lot over the years and there was a lot of therapy and there was a lot of different types of therapy and there was a lot of different types of healing modalities as well because I really, there's just so much involved with it. You know, you have these genes in your body and you have these predispositions for certain things like depression or anxiety. And then when you have that coupled with trauma, then of course those genes go, you flip the switch and, and that can make it worse. You know? Right. So right. there was that, there was, there was a physical effects. There was the fact that I have Hashimoto's and maybe that, you know, trauma trigger made it worse or at what, least turn on. Can, can you tell people what that is for those yeah. people that don't have any clue? Okay. Hashimoto's is an autoimmune thyroid disorder. So basically your body, your immune system attacks your thyroid and the, the hormone that comes out. So, um, there are so many different symptoms. Mine was debilitating fatigue and high anxiety. So, and there was some weight gain for a while there, but that, that tapered off. But, um, I would get a lot of joint pain. I was bedridden for a period of time because I just really like every day it was just hard to get out of bed, completely, you know, difficult to get out of bed. And what I found was, um, you know, just the, the way you react emotionally, it affects your emotions as well. It can. That was a big thing for me. The doctors would just say, you're just anxious and depressed. And um, I had reason, there was reasons to be, but sometimes there weren't. And sometimes it's like, did, does is the anger depression triggering the physical symptoms or are the physical symptoms triggering the anger depression when it all gets kind of mixed up in your mind? You don't oh, know yeah. chicken or egg, which, which, started, which started it. Well, and so, the antidepressants were working against you too. It's like you had all these things affecting you that weren't helping you get on a clear path it was more it was more troublesome you know the loss of libido the shame I mean not having energy the weight gain I mean all of that yeah that's got to be so hard Laura it's just hard to make sense of but it's it's 
to me, it's amazing because the more I researched, the more I was super curious, like, how do I, how do I, you know, I had people that would make fun of me just like, just, you, it's always something with you. It's like, yeah, because I'm learning every day something new, you know, I'm learning, I'm learning how each part affects the other part. And to me, that's fascinating. It's, yeah. it's amazing that, that I can have, um, high anxiety because I've been stressed about these low level things, or I can have, you know, a resurgence of my physical symptoms and think that that came from nowhere. And it really may have been the underlying anxiety that triggered it. Um, So that's helpful to know, but you know, people don't want to say that as well, because it's just like, well, then, then you're supposed to have control of all that. No, you you don't, you don't even know what's happening. Right. Yeah. Right. The The pandemic put everybody at a different level of anxiety, whether or not you were, afraid of it. There was a shift in the way everybody functioned that causes anxiety. Right. Like, and and yeah. yeah, just the sheer polar opposites of how people handled it. Like you're saying, if you were fearful of it, fine, that's one thing. But if you're saying like, oh, this is a big conspiracy and I'm not going to wear a mask, <laughs> that causes some confusion too. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What would you What would you say to people listening that are considering going on an antidepressant or have talked with their doctor and their doctor just wants to write them a prescription and have that kind of fix them. Um, maybe they haven't even thought of therapy or where can people start from ground one? Cause you've been through it. Well, I think it's important definitely to talk to doctor always about it. And then I don't know that this is still the case, but at least for a while it was where you would go to your general practitioner and they just prescribe an antidepressant And I think that's all well and good that they can do that. But the thing that I really feel people need to know is that you should be monitored. You should be regularly seeing somebody if you're on an antidepressant or your family should be alerted to the fact that if your moods shift intensely, that it may be the medication, but there's some people that have effects. So, and it will affect your mood. And not, not to everybody because I have friends that, that medication was what they needed. Yeah. Um, even for me, even from, you know, there, for, there was a time that I really needed to have something to settle me down. Yeah. But I feel that long term, it just didn't work for me. So I'm, yeah. I'm no longer on, on any medication other than my thyroid medication, which yeah. is helpful. Well, yeah. And I've learned need that. Yeah. I've learned how to, how to, um, you know, I still have anxiety and depression from time to time, but I've also learned how I have a lot more tools than I did back then. Yeah. And, um, so that's helpful for me. And, and also getting my Hashimoto's under control means that I have less of the less intense, right. you know, bouts of those things. So all that is very helpful. But I think for a lot of people who don't have the time to, you know, they've got a lot going on in their lives. Maybe they're raising little, you know, infants or something like that, that you really do need. If you really do need that, then you really should try it. If, be, if yes. it does, be mindful of the side effects and be mindful of whether or not you're shifting in, in the way you can react to things. And then if you need to try something else, but somebody needs to keep monitoring it because it's too easy to um, mistake your thoughts as as just your thoughts and your your body, you know, it's too, it, yeah. you can separate them and they, they can't be separated. So not saying that every mood you have negatively is caused by an antidepressant because that's, you know, some, sometimes the antidepressant does exactly what it's supposed to do and it's helping you feel better, right. um, relieving some of that, the low level stuff so you can, you know, differentiate. But 
it's it's just good to have some sort of monitor, somebody looking out for you, somebody watching to see if you're, you know, um, you seem angry or you seem a lot more tense all the time or you seem very, like, panicked or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, it's helpful. But I think I wouldn't ever tell anybody not to go on antidepressant because I think it's really important that people have a, like, like a button, like that button, you know, like that panic button. Like, okay, no, this, this is going to stop everything so that, you know, we get to a stasis and then we can figure out, okay, how do we function? Yeah. From in the here. long term. From the yeah, long, yeah. No, I, I agree with you totally. I am in the same boat. I've had friends that, an antidepressant or, you know, helpful medication in that realm has been really good for them. And, you know, uh, short, shortly before the pandemic started in January, I started taking Cymbalta and I've talked about this on previous episodes, but long story short, I did, I had, um, super low libido, super just quiet affect, totally not myself, kind of lethargic even. Um, and, and there were days actually I felt like my depression was greater and I, and I blame some of that on the pandemic too. So I do, I'll never know what, how that could have helped me on a beautiful sunny day when the fairgrounds are open and there's people around and, you know, there's things to do, but I was able to get off of it as well. I had weight gain. I still like, I'm still, I feel like I'm still kind of working that off. And so you're right. You really have to balance kind of what's important to you, what works, what doesn't, how are you feeling? And I agree. I'm so thankful for my mom during those months, Laura, because she was able to talk to me weekly about how I was feeling and if I had any reservations and if I felt like I was on too much, because I was, I felt like super caffeinated because I was on like 60 milligrams and I, and I don't need to be caffeinated. I feel like you probably already know that about me. Like, dude, I've got the caffeine. I don't need more. So I agree. It's person to person because everybody's different and all of our traumas everybody's are different, different and our genes are different. Yeah. It's just, yes. And involve your doctor, seek out mental health therapy. Um, what other toolbox things have helped you cope over the years? Are you a meditator? Has your spirituality been important? Talk a little bit about your faith and how that's changed from the time you were eight years old and shit hit the fan. I mean, how has it changed over, over the years and is it important? Uh, my faith for me, I, I mean, I feel it's, you know, I love the naked pastor because the whole idea of deconstruction is very important to me because I feel that people are missing the more important, the overarching themes, you know, they're focusing in on the minutia and, and saying, you're going to go to hell for this little tiny thing and not seeing the overall message. Because I think people miss also the fact that, that when you look at all the world religions, there's common threads running through it. Maybe that's the point, the common threads. Yeah. Um, So I'm not tied to a, a specific type of religion. I have a, one of our very close friends is, um, was our pastor. Uh, of a church, the last church I was in, and he's no longer pastor right right now. But he um he says you're a Unitarian, <laughs> and I'm like, well, I would be if I went to any kind of you know sort of formal gathering. It probably would be, but um I really just see the value in in faith, and also the um, danger in organized religion and our tendencies to want to control. Uh, which is the opposite of faith, like trying to control everything. And because I've had so many control issues, I was, you know, diagnosed OCD when I was uh, 16 or 17. Uh, because I've had those control issues that are largely driven by subconscious and conscious fears. And I'm very aware of that, that when 
people try to use fear to manipulate me, I'm also very aware of that. And I've seen so much of that in every church that I've been in. Um, I love my, the faith of my mother because it's not, it's not based in fear. Um, I have a really good friend also who, who I, you know, I discuss a lot of spiritual things with and she is also, you know, not based in fear. It's not based in fear. It's about, it's about faith. It's all the, the things that are life giving and none of the things that are, are the things that make us smaller or diminish, um, other people because, you know, my husband likes to always he was raised Catholic as well. And, you know, was an altar boy and all those other things. He just likes to say he loves, he loves the comedians that, that talk about like, well, if one of these people is wrong, then everybody else, you know, that the person that the comedians that joke about, like you get to heaven and you find out everybody else was wrong. And so it's just this one person that gets, you know, yes, you're, you know, you're out of luck, you know, and he's yeah. just, it's just ridiculous because it's, it's how do you make an all powerful God so small? so petty, so judgmental. I mean, if you ascribe these, you know, you say all powerful, all knowing, you know, defeats death. There is no, you know, then how, then how are you wrapped around the axle that all, all these little details, because that negates all that, you know, I think God can handle some questioning. If you think God is this big, mm-hmm. you know, a question's not going to, if he created you, I think a little question's not, I mean, I just think of as a mother, when your kids come to you and they have a question about something or they doubt something you're saying, right. and it's like, oh, are you just going to smite them? I mean, what right, is, right. What is going you on? have to yeah. question yourself how you're going to react to to your kids. Right. That's a great example. Um, I, don't, I don't have a problem. I think questioning is the most important thing. I do, too. Yeah. I do, too. When we talk about deconstruction, for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, there is an episode with the naked pastor. He's like number three and. Then I did a three and a half follow up episode right after that because I had already gotten the first one out. So if people want to go back and listen to it, they can. But I think, Laura, that, you know, when we talk about deconstructing our faith, you sort of, as you age too, deconstruct your own beliefs about who you are, where you came from, what your moralities, values, interests are, and why they are that way. It's really incredible. Like, I talk a lot about the four agreements on this podcast, too, and cognitive distortions. And isn't it amazing when you get to a point in your life, it's terrifying and it causes panic, but it's also really empowering to know, like, wait a minute, I was raised this way. I knew nothing else. So this is how I chose to act. This is what I chose to believe. And now I'm in a place where I can think independently for myself. And that's pretty amazing, right? Yeah, it's it can be both liberating and empowering and terrifying. If you don't know, you know, like right. you, when you, if when you, you don't realize trust yourself. if you don't trust yourself. And that's that's the thing that I really would tell people is super important that you learn you have to learn to trust yourself. Because a lot of religions will tell you not to. Like, oh, that, you know, if if anything you say or feel or think is doesn't keep you in line with what we want, then you, oh, that's the devil inside you. You know, that's right. That's Satan. Right. But that is such a, that is, that is the way, honestly, in all my experience with a lot of manipulators and a lot of narcissistic personalities that I have invited into my life, that is the way they do it. That is the way they control you. And I've had to own up to the fact that I have allowed that control. Like I have almost invited that kind of control for so long. So that now when I see it, it's pretty hard to miss. And I see it so much in, in different religions. And, and I just, the, 
that I have friends that I love dearly who just don't even want to question. And that is, that's fine. They don't have to question. I just don't understand why you wouldn't question. Yeah. And I'm okay with it if that's as far as you want to go, as long as you're not pushing your non-questioning <laughs> right. on anybody else. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's so hard. It's so yeah. hard. And, you know, there are so many people that have such polarized thinking, right? It's like, it's black or it's white. There's no in between. And the reality is there's so much gray yeah. in between. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, and when you can acknowledge that and when you're not panicked by it, then you learn so much from other people, you know? I love yeah. that when the, the naked pastor recently had something up there about how somebody got upset. Like if you're questioning, then you're definitely whatever. I'm just like, people who don't want to question don't want anybody to question. Like, oh, that's threat. That's so threatening. Right. Yeah. And why would we box God into a tiny little, tiny little scope when it's almost like he's also given us the ability to question. So why wouldn't we? Right. Yeah. Why wouldn't we challenge the depths that we can love each other and how much grace we can give one another? Like, that's the beautiful part. Like you said, the life-giving, whether you believe in Jesus or not, or God or not, so many religions have the overarching belief that, like, yeah, do the good, be the good, share the good, right? And that itself is Jesus, right? That yeah, itself is God. That's the example. That's the that's example that was set for us. Yeah. yeah. And when we talk about, like, the Holy Spirit, God, and Jesus, aren't they all the same thing? Yeah. And not only that, that's also Gandalf and, uh, you know, Frodo. I mean, it's like uh, Star yeah. Wars. It's like, it's right? in all, all our stories. It's in all our, it's in all our epics. It's, it's all, it's all there. You know, it's yeah. the same story being told over and over again. Of course, a lot of those, Authors were influenced by, you know, their faith as well. But it, it's we keep telling the same story and we keep missing the same point. <laughs> right. Right. Like, yeah. why do we have to complicate it so much? I know I am so thankful for the Naked Pastor, too. And I'm so thankful that we got to talk about that because that's just <laughs> fun. And spirituality is so much more complex than I think we'll ever know. And I'm OK knowing that, too. And you're right. There is a level of scariness in that. Right. Like. Because a lot of people, I think, turn to faith for a definitive answer, and sometimes it's not there, right? Yeah. And they turn for those answers because they're scared, because they don't know what's going to happen, because they don't know, like, you know, if, if somebody close to them dies or something something horrible happens if they when they face the trauma of any any trauma, and they don't understand what's going to happen or, or you know, that's, I understand that fear. I, I live that fear, you know? Yeah. But it's debilitating. Fear is debilitating. And you it don't is. want to live that way. So, yeah. It is. Um, I can just share a quick example. And I'm going to change the story a little bit so that people don't know who I'm talking about and what. But we'll just say I went to a church in St. Paul, you know, within the last 10 years. And I knew a woman by the name of Jennifer who worked with children in this church. She was the kids leader or whatever. And she was being abused by her husband, and she had all adult children. And so finally, when the children were adults and marrying off on their own, she left her husband and, and went out independently on her own. And the church found out and told her that if she doesn't try to go to counseling with her husband, that she can no longer teach kids club. Yeah. Isn't that terrible? Yeah. So the church is intervening to a woman who 
has had the balls and the gusto. I keep saying balls, and I hate that because I'm a woman <laughs> and I don't have balls. <laughs> the ovaries. Yes, yeah, she, she has the stinking ovaries and the life-giving ability to be the coolest human in the on the planet who God created her, and she knew that it wasn't healthy, and she left. And then her faith leaders, people who should have been having her back, right, and helping her cope, told her to go back to the abuse, and then she could give her spiritual gift of teaching the children. It's just like... Did you ever read um, the Poisonwood Bible? No. Oh, gosh. Now, now the name, the author's name slipped my... It's okay, but you know the title. Tell us right. about it. The Poison... Well, there's just... I don't want to give everything away, but but it's such a great book. And and I always think of this example from the book, is that there's missionaries, and they're going to convert these people, you know. Um, I want to say it's Africa. It's been such a long time since I read the book. But they're, they're in this village, and they are so... I won't give away why it's called The Poison Bible, because that's the best part of the book. Okay. But they... They're watching this, these villagers who are exemplifying, like, you know, just all the best attributes, but they're not, they have to convert them. And that's the more important thing. They don't look at the people and say, look at, you know, all the amazing things they yeah. do to one another. It's like, no, that's wrong because right. it's not the way I've, I, I've declared that it should be. You have to behave this way. And that's the only way that this right. makes sense. And it's just like, if, it's like, if we could just sit there and, 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 not try to box it into one thing. Like, you know, you're, we try to look at everything through a very, very narrow perspective instead of really just trying to widen our perspective, which I think is the, is the bigger purpose for us even being here in a community, in a world community. Yeah. Like we're all born in different places, different faiths, different, you know, experiences, different climates, different everything. Yes. Our perspective should be to widen our experience, not narrow everybody else down to ours. That doesn't right. make sense. But that's, that's kind of, you know, what happens. And I think, I think of that whenever I think what these people, they don't see the forest for the trees because it's right in front of you. Her gift. There's, and there's, you see that so much with the, there's like the default and I don't want to, to, go too deep into it but there's like the default perspective and i've my husband's german descent and i'm hispanic and i and we talk about the white male perspective and i said but you have to understand that that's the perspective that i had to pattern like we had to assimilate to the white male perspective right and and so like my culture was not taught to us even though i grew up in a predominantly hispanic neighborhood right that was definitely not a default it was at home but not at school not you know not in business not in every place else we had to assimilate to that and that is very um you know that's there's something that you dismiss a lot in that of yourself in that when that's there's that one perspective and then people look at you like you're crazy like oh you're you know even people of, of your own heritage look at you like well i mean what's the big deal like right you, you know but it's but it's it's not knowing yourself. It's not trusting yourself. It's othering yourself to try to be like something else. And the truth of the matter is I don't speak Spanish fluently. So I can't, I'm like, in, I'm in between, you know, like I'm not going to be, um, people on this side look at me and say, you're, you know, you're, you've assimilated and people, other people will look at me and say, you're clearly Hispanic. So stay over there, you know, kind of thing. Right. Oh. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. But there's there's definitely this, uh, even in, especially in a lot of faiths, uh, I think Jimmy Carter had a whole quote about it, about how most of the world's religions could have chosen um, to 
lift women up and put them in, you know, positions of power or respect their, their, I mean, they're made by God too. But all the interpretations have been that women are lesser. Not all, not across the board, but the, you know, right. the major ones you hear it a lot. There, there's a lot of misogyny in that too. It's that, right. you know, which amazes me because I'm just like, we create babies in our bodies and we push them oh, out. I mean, yeah. that's, that's you literally life. create life without, without a woman, there would be no yeah. more life. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I love your bravery in talking about all this stuff. Um, it's really incredible. So thank you so much. Um, can you talk a little bit, Laura, as long as you have time about your music and how that's been healing for you and tell people how they can find you, why music, why a musician, why a singer, how has it helped you? After my second assault, no, not after my second, after my first, no, sorry, when I had my nervous breakdown, let me get this, the timing right. Uh, when I had my nervous breakdown, when my parents divorced and the break, the broke, the breakup happened away at college. The only thing I could bring myself to do was to write poetry and lyrics. That's all I could do. Like I, I would get on the bus to go to campus to go to class because I was no longer in the dorms because that was traumatic. Um, and I would never make it to campus. I'd just stand in the bus and I'd write. That's the only thing that made me feel normal. Um, that helped me process what was happening. Like if I could, if I could, I couldn't come out and tell the average person. Your roommate. Right. I couldn't say this all happened to me and I feel this way about myself and I'm doing these horrible things and I don't, you know, that I, that I feel shame about and I couldn't say that out loud. So I had to write in code. I called, you know, it was in code as about the way I was feeling. And that to me was the way I could function, that way I could look. So that's where the music started. It started in writing lyrics and, and, uh, and poetry because I needed to get that out. And then it went from there and I, I had, you know, I felt like, man, this is just a dumb music career when everything I write about is just because I'm just purging my feelings. But like, they, no, that's like, that's like a thing. You know, that's, that's been the purpose for me. Some people write for different reasons. Mine has been things that really, um, affect me and they can be love. It can be in a positive, it can be a positive effect. It could be whatever, but things that drive me emotionally are what I write about. And it's very, on the one hand, very therapeutic, but it's also, purpose like it's it gives me a purpose it's like I want to share this there's something here that is I feel I have to share it with other people because when they understand it like if I've been able to put it into words then maybe that'll help other people understand and put something into perspective in their own lives whatever that means to them you know I don't that's not going to be the same thing that it means to me but it's going to mean something to somebody yeah it's bigger it's bigger than you right like Right. What yeah. you need to share and what you artistically need to create is bigger than you, right? Like yeah. that full. Now, sometimes I've written songs that have been directly like from from an altercation with somebody or something like that. And then I feel a little selfish, right, about that. Right. But at the same time, I feel it's important to get that perspective out because I think it's important to model the strength of, of being able to get out of that situation or to be able to say to stand up for yourself and to trust yourself as well. So there's a lot of that. And I'm, you know, I put the music out and, and I was laughing because for the longest time I was about, Oh, love and light. And, you know, I have my tattoo here, be love or whatever. And I'm like, it was all, I was like, I'm just going to write about all kinds of love 
that's what I'm going to write about. Right. And then then I went through a period of time where I was just angry and I just wanted to write what was making me angry. And then 2020, 2016 to 2020, it's like, I'm just so angry about so many things. And so stuff started coming out there. And the, the, the songs that I have coming out now are really about me standing my ground with some people who were manipulative. So, Good uh, for you. Yeah, but it was scary. I it know. was really scary to think like, well, people are going to just think that I'm this bitter person. I'm like, you know what? No, I'm not a bitter person. This this stuff needed to be said in my life. Yeah. And maybe that'll be helpful for somebody else. But that stuff's coming out later uh, this year. And yeah, and I'm on I'm on all the things. I'm on all the things, Instagram, Twitter. But I'm not. I don't have a page on Facebook because my page was stolen by hackers. So it, I come across as verified on Facebook, but it's not me. It's somebody in in. Um, oh well, that's good. Mix. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm glad that you're telling us that so that people don't follow them. Thank you. Oh, oh my gosh, yeah, don't go to Facebook for me. It says I'm verified, but it's not me. Um, and I'm I'm debating on whether or not to have Facebook take down the entire page or. There's, they have me, their legal team has me kind of like going, well, we're getting to it. We're getting to it, but I don't know how long that's going to take. And I don't are know. they, are they like actively stealing your posts from Twitter and Instagram and putting them on their Facebook and like changing it? Like, I've seen they've, they've done that with other people, but they haven't. They all, everything that was me this far has been just me that I posted previously. Now they're posting a bunch of weird videos like peacocks and. What and the animals hell? and weird stuff. I don't know what they're. I don't know what they're trying to do. Honestly, I don't know what their game is. But yeah, they have, they have control of it, and I'm afraid that that anybody who follows them, they'll send direct messages to, and I'm. That That's not you. Out. Yeah, yeah, no, me. that freaks yeah. me out too. God, there's so many freaking creeps online, isn't there? Yeah. Um. Okay, so on Instagram, you're Laura L A U R A Marie M A R I E in words. Mm-hmm. That's your name. Is it the same for your Twitter. I actually have two Instagram accounts. That's that one because I'm coming out with a book. So I had to, I had separated my music from my. Oh, that's so cool. Congratulations. So I I have, uh, on both Twitter and Instagram, I have Laura Marie music and my, my website is Laura Marie music as well. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Tell us about the book quick. I want to hear about that. Yeah. That's, that was, um, I'm writing a book that is, based on my experience in the music industry and basically like the five things I wish I knew before I entered the music industry. Cool. Because I see a lot of people like me who have had either a kind of trauma or they just don't know themselves, don't trust themselves and they get into it and it's just too easy to get swayed. It's, the, you know, like all, oh, yeah. everything in the entertainment this, the, you know, industry yeah. is, is rough in that. I believe it. You could let yourself be swallowed up right away, but you're not going to do that. And so I love that you're giving people the tools to really trust themselves and start to dig deep into into where that confidence can come from. Because when you were just talking about being angry over the last years and being like, you know, I'm just making all this angry music and I don't know what's happening. <laughs> but, you're, but you're also so glad that you worked through that and, and, and didn't listen to those bad voices in your head saying, maybe I shouldn't do this or I can't do this or I'm not good enough. I mean, crap. When, when, like I said, when the pandemic started and I started this podcast, I had all these doubts and I still do, right? But I'm 40 episodes strong. I'm going to keep going. There is so much importance in sharing these stories, Laura, and your music is exactly that. Those are stories. Those are, I, you know, I love the quote that's like, you know, your story of rough, I'm not saying this right, and you'll know what I'm talking about, but it's like your story of 
rough living or things you've been through will one day be a survival guide page in someone else's book, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that is so true because I could have, you know, a couple interviews that maybe don't, people can't relate to as much, right? And then I have gold like I do with you. And, um, and, and that's why I do it. I mean, every story matters, right? And, and like you said, there are different degrees of trauma and different degrees of experience. So I'm not even saying that some of the stories I've heard are not worth it. But I, I love that my form of art and storytelling is just hopefully helping people feel less alone, right? And yeah. someone who maybe doesn't have the bravery to talk about their sexual assault will hear your episode and save themselves a lot of hurt, right? And and be able to try to navigate a different path. Yeah, I hope so. I really, you know, to me that makes it just like I've done something with this. So that's a good that's a good thing. I took something really horrible and I did something good and decent with it and that makes me feel better. about everything yeah good good because that's what life's all about right is lighting the path and and loving on our neighbors um what is your book called do you have a title for it yet and when will it come out um i'm still in the editing phase and i think it i'm I'm shooting for the end of the summer but you know wow um, but it i'm working titles yeah Yeah. working title is is five things i wish i knew before i (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> entered the music industry, right? but I'm still working on the wording. Yeah. Well, so. I love it. I think that's so cool and good for you. Um, you're very inspiring to me. So thank you. Thank is, you. is there anything else you want to share like related to resilience um, and what you've been through? How would you define resilience? Oh my gosh. Um, I don't know. I, you know, I think there's something I do want to share and I'm trying to think of the way to say it because I've said it well, before a couple of times. Take your time because even if there's a long pause, I can <laughs> edit out the long edit. pause. So take as long as you need, because I love to hear it. There was a, okay, it's sometimes depression and anxiety is the sane response to an insane situation. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of shame associated with these things, even, even, and even though now it's so talked about, there's still that, you know, if you've always been the person that it's, has it all together, then there's shame when you don't, it just comes in. Right. So, um, and especially if you've always looked at other people and gone, Oh, what's their problem. And then you have it, then it's like, Oh, I don't want to be like the person I, you know, look at those people like they were crazy. And now it's me. And and how do you stay positive when you are in an insane situation? Because you're, you're giving people the authority and grace to say, this is insane and I can't handle it. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, the most powerful things I think I learned were that not everything you think in your brain is the truth and your feelings are valid no matter what your feelings are and your feelings are temporary. That was one of the hardest things because I was just mired in so much anxiety and depression that it was hard to see that, no, these actually are temporary. Um, right. And addictive. And that, that when I finally, you know, when I was telling somebody this the other day, I said, it's, I don't want to say you can change your thoughts because it's not easy to learn how to do it until you know how to do it. And then you really can't change your thoughts. Like you can really deliberately, but not until you've, you have an awareness of how you can change them after you've seen proof of it. And then you deliberately keep trying to, and then it's still like, I changed it a little bit, but not until late, or I changed it a little bit. And then I went back to the old thought, but you think that that in itself is proof that you 
can't, but you actually can. You actually can redirect. And it takes a while. And I want to just tell people there is hope because if I can go from being OCD and agoraphobic and suicidal and all these things at different points in my life to being functional and productive and happy and um, joyful even, I mean, and inspired, you know, there's times I just feel like just bounding with creativity, then yeah, these things are temporary. They don't feel temporary. And yeah, they I, really don't. They it's really, really so don't. hard yeah. when you're in the muck and you're in the mud and it's up to your eyeballs. You know, right. it's like, it is, it's hard to think like, I'm not going to be in this forever, you know? Right. And, and it's interesting because I think that's what people have a hard time with too. When you talk about faith, it's like, you know, I, I hope my mom wouldn't mind me sharing like ever since my cancer in 2014, you know, now I'm in a wheelchair today, Laura. And, and sometimes I say, I feel like she's having a harder time cope with that than I am. And, and I try to remind her that she won't always feel like this, even though she's so sad and depressed now. So I'm so glad you're bringing that up. Cause that's when we do irrational things, right? When we believe that it, nothing's ever going to be different. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's what, that's when it happens. It's like, like you really, you do need to, to be able to, even when, to recognize when you start to spiral out of control and have, have something in your brain that says, I'm spiraling. I know what this is, but I also know that I'm spiraling, but I also know that, that, that there's a different outcome to that spiral. It doesn't yeah. have to be out the window or with a bottle of pills or even a bottle of alcohol. It can be, um, this is my spiral. I'm writing everything down I'm really quick, furiously. I'm writing, you know, yep. I'm raging on a paper or I'm, I'm hitting a pillow or yeah. whatever. Yeah. I have another, yeah, a thing, another thing. Right. To to. I'm going to go yeah. cut up firewood with my axe and I'm going to take a walk and I'm not going to talk <laughs> yeah. to anybody for 24 hours. Yeah. Um, have you ever meditated or, or do you feel like you do meditate when you write? Like, does that make sense? That question? Yeah. It makes sense. Um, I have meditated. And the funny thing is when I started meditating, I was ter- I was terrified to close my eyes. Like I couldn't do it for more than a few minutes because I thought something was going to come and get me. Um, and then I got to where I was meditating pretty regularly. Now I meditate more when I'm like I go for walking meditations. Like walking is a big thing for me, like long drawn out hikes and that sort of thing. And I also do feel that the I do get in a zone when I'm writing too. That's very uh, meditative as well. But I don't. Yeah. I'm. I keep having it in my, in my mind of like, okay, now you got to reset your pattern of of meditating like deliberately and meditating regularly because I start to feel like I'm I'm getting a little too task oriented, and that's usually where I kind of lose myself. So yeah. yeah, yeah, we all need rest. That's important, especially during COVID. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, very good. Um, you know, uh, and I'm sorry, I'm kind of going back and forth here because I don't want to let you go yet. But <laughs> you you had said something earlier in the interview about how when someone speaks words over you, whether it's true or not, it, it sort of becomes like your reality for a moment. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, or, or like if, if someone tells you you're, you know, what am I trying to say? You don't know what I'm trying to say, do you? No. <laughs> it, it's like. If someone speaks negativity over you mm-hmm. or says like, oh, you're just being a certain way, sometimes yeah. we can feel that and yeah. and make it an actual physical reality. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, for sure. Yeah. I've seen that happen. I've seen, I used to have this very manipulative person in my life who would constantly, and I didn't know this was a tactic of narcissists I, I, until recently, actually, but it was just like, are you okay? Are you feeling okay? You seem kind of down. 
you know, and, and, and first that sounds, that just sounds like somebody who's concerned about you, but there was a, there was a pattern of doing it and it sort of like uh, would undermine my confidence in like, oh, I thought I was doing fine. And it would end up to a conversation where like, well, you know, I think I might be upset about this thing and oh, I can help you with that. And then it's like, man, what would I do without you? Like, what would I do? I mean, like, I didn't even know I was upset. And now you figured out my life. Like, it was a way of getting me to question my own instinct about myself. Yeah. So it was this kind of like, are you sure? Like, you can actually manipulate somebody that way. It's actually, I think it's in one of the, might be one of those laws of power or whatever, the manipulative handbook or whatever. But it's, it's this kind of this thing. If you just keep going into somebody, like you go work in an office and you see somebody like, you look tired, you look tired and you do it every day. Then within a month's time, that person's just like, God, I feel tired. So tired. Like, yeah. yeah. Cause you keep barking at me telling <laughs> right. me I'm tired. I'm tired of that. Yeah. Uh, so it, you know, there's, there's a way we can internalize and we have to sort of keep our distance in, in a sense when we're not, feeling ourselves or not feeling great and give ourselves space to actually, and that's where meditation is really great in that respect, because you have that, that time to be very aware of yourself in the moment. And when you have that connection with yourself, I think people underestimate that one of the biggest uh, breakthroughs in my marriage, when we were struggling through a lot of different, uh, you know, problems Mm -hmm. was when I, finally understood that the main, my main problem was that I didn't trust myself and I was dependent on him in, in many ways. And so the not trusting myself that I still work on that to this day, but not trusting yourself and not being able to, to trust that, you know, what you think, that, you know, what you feel, that, you know, you know, that you can take care of yourself, that you can function and be okay. That, that in itself, you know, that's very important for everybody, no matter, you know, single in a relationship, um, whatever. That's yeah. just so important. Yeah, it's like a lifelong skill that you never don't want to, you, you, you never want to leave that behind. You always need to keep that. Yeah. You know, we are the captain captains of our own ship. So, yeah. well, Laura, thank you so much. This has been absolutely wonderful. I am so thankful for you being so vulnerable and open and brave. And I'm excited about your book. I'm not even in the <laughs> music industry, but I think that would be really great because I know you're going to talk about your experiences with trauma and yeah. coping and, and, and how to be confident. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm very inspired by you. I think it's amazing what you're doing. and uh, Yeah, I'm super excited. Well, thanks, girl. <laughs> so people are going to be able to find you at www.pushdiariespodcast.com forward slash Laura. And you're going to be episode 41. So thank you so much. Awesome. So fast. Have fun editing. Have fun editing. (laughs) I'm going to be editing all night. You know it. Well, thank you, Laura. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. And yeah, hit me up in the future if you ever want to share more or, you know, promote your book in the future or more music. I'm really excited to follow you. And again, thank you so much. Hey, one more quick question. Since your sexual assaults and, and what you know now about yourself and the misogyny and the sexualized culture we live in, have you ever thought about going into any law stuff? Or I know you said you spoke at like some rape awareness councils or, or um, events. Center, yeah. yeah, the crisis center. How does your life look now 
And I guess I'm asking you that because as a woman with a disability who didn't have it until she was 24 years old, I'm like trying to navigate how to advocate for people in my situation, but that have been disabled for their whole lives and maybe don't have the perspective that I do. And I know you get that because you've been through something similar. So like, how do you balance advocating for others? And maybe it's just the awareness for you it's the singing about it but but how do you yeah I was thinking about that the other day because I do for a while I felt kind of guilty that I wasn't doing more I mean I did I I spoke at the rape crisis center's uh fundraiser and I performed for them there and I performed for another event there and I try to add my voice or or to you know raise awareness as much as I can about these things and even participate in you know in ways that we're asked to like vote this way or that way you know just you know spread awareness with that but I found that I had friends that were volunteering to actually help at the rape crisis center and I couldn't do it because I felt it would, that I would be mired in the, you know, I, I'd like I would keep triggering myself over and over again. Cause I was, a, it was a period of time where I was very reactive and angry. So it was, right. You know, it it so, wasn't a good time for you to be just like on stage all the time. Right. So I decided what I was going, um, you know, I think as far as, my dad always said, you make a good lawyer because you argue a lot. I tend to get very emotionally invested in stuff. And I think that when I am, that's a big trigger for my autoimmune disorder. So I, yeah. I try to find ways that I can balance out without getting so emotionally overwhelmed. And that sort of puts a limit on how much oh, I can do. Um, I hear that, yeah. girl. I hear that. I swear my pain. You know, I have arthritis in my back. I have rods and I have screws and I had three vertebrae removed, like crazy stuff. But you're so right. Our bodies harness so much physical response to when we're uncomfortable or when we're pushing ourselves too much. It's people don't talk about that enough, right? Like how much our environment and what we force ourselves to do truly does impact the way you feel. I mean, I'll be on social media and then I'll feel like this discomfort my stomach. Okay. Yeah. That's it. That's I, I, why am I, why am I feeling the ten, I'm right. feeling tension scrolling? Stop it. Stop. Yeah. Why I'm thinking it for a while going, I really, I, why, I need to stop this. Stop this. Stop this. Stop this. Okay. You and know, an hour like, later. An yeah. hour later. <laughs> okay. Like this Dude. isn't, this isn't making you happy. This is making you angry, you know? Right. And so I, because I, you know, I don't want to be the, I don't want to be at home because I tend to be that person that just can't leave it at the office. You know what I mean? emotionally that um I'm very aware of how my mood impacts my husband and my kids because oh, yeah. I've impacted them in the past. So now I don't want, I want to try to minimize it as much. And I know they'd probably sit here laughing like, Oh my gosh, but you're so moody. But yes, <laughs> I want to, I want to minimize that. So I have to really mind how much of that I do and how much I, I surround myself with it. And that's why also I look at people and I go, you know, they, they, We'll get after other people like you need to do this. You know, I'm like, you don't need to tell anybody what to do. People do what they mental health first. Yes. What they can, yes. what they can cope with. Before, Absolutely. You know. Yeah. Calvin and Hobbes said it best. There's a quote that was like, you take care of you and I'll take care of me. And you know, then, then you're kind of in harmony. And that's true. Yeah. That is the truth. That is really the truth. And, and yeah. I think of Renee Brown. She talked about how she just was so angry at this woman, a scofflaw or whatever. And do you think she's doing the best you can? She can? No, she's not doing the best she can. Yes, she is doing the best she can. And that's hard because you see people and it's like super, the first thing my mind goes to is like, ugh. Judgment. Judgment. And then you have to take a step back and like, well, you know, I have no idea what they're dealing with. I have no idea what they're going through. Yeah. 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 
Well, thank you, Laura. You have a wonderful day. God bless you. you. And thank you for all of your wisdom. Thank you for all yours. And I'm just, I'm just so glad we're connected and we can follow each other. And, you know, I love to see what you're doing. You're very, very inspiring. Thank you, Laura. You too. You take care and thanks again so much for coming on. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. This has been Push Diaries Podcast. Please visit our website at pushdiariespodcast.com to see our mission and learn more about the guests. This is your podcast too. I want to hear your stories. Email me at pushdiariespodcast at gmail.com and consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com forward slash pushdiariespodcast. Thank you for listening. Hey there, if you are a sponsor or would like to run a commercial and think that my message and my podcast would be beneficial for your business, please consider contacting me. I would be honored to work with you. We have the ability to put commercials into these episodes. Thank you for your consideration. I'm a born Minnesotan, now Michigan girl whose life was thrown into an ineffable state of uncertainty in 2014. I was 24 years old and diagnosed with a rare deadly tumor. Superhuman doctors at the Mayo Clinic of Rochester, Minnesota saved my life by cutting me in half then putting me back together again with my leg bone. We decided to put me in a cauldron full of chemotherapy drugs for nearly a year in hopes of killing the mutated cells while my incisions in my skin from three days of surgery took seven months to heal. It was so tough, but I'm so glad I'm here with you all on the other side. My fiance Tyler and I have started creating bonus content for our Patreon supporters. Patreon gives creators the tools needed to acquire, manage, and energize their paying patrons. Having to ask people for money is difficult, and your support of this show is greatly appreciated. Thank you for sharing in my dream, and be sure to check out the bonus content online at patreon.com forward slash Push Diaries Podcast. Bye.